You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. You're listening to Desert Island Gems, an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that the journey inspires you and helps you reflect. For more information on the show, visit the Radio Ramadan Glasgow webpage and look out for extended versions of the interviews on mcmuslim.tv, the new online video channel for Scottish Muslims. So our guest today is Iqbal Naseem, the Chief Executive of the National Zakat Foundation and we're sitting in the headquarters here in East London. Assalamu alaikum Iqbal, thank you for joining us. Wa alaikum So Iqbal, tell us a bit about the National Zakat Foundation. Sure. So the National Zakat Foundation uh, began in 2011. Uh, we're basically a zakat institution for the UK Muslim community and we have two core aims. Number one is that all zakat that should be being paid in the UK is paid. Uh, so that Muslims in this country understand, calculate and pay their zakat properly. Uh, and secondly, that uh, we have an exclusive uh, local focus when it comes to the distribution of zakat. So we, what we're trying to do is revive one of the classical principles of zakat, which is for zakat to be, to be distributed locally and for the um, eligible recipients of zakat in this country to be to receive their dues. Now, the growth of the whole Islamic finance sector over the last few years has been quite massive, particularly in the UK. Um, do you think this is the heyday for the industry? Oh, I'm not sure I can necessarily comment uh, specifically on the Islamic finance industry per se, but I do think that there is a kind of an overlap when we look at the work of the National Zakat Foundation from the perspective, you know, Muslims, you know, in the UK, uh, and elsewhere in so-called Western countries uh, are kind of trying to figure out what it means to be Muslim in the kind of context, the time and place that we find ourselves in. And so just as in the financial kind of uh, sector, people are trying to then carve out this niche of Islamic finance. Similarly, when it comes to something as uh, important, as central as the institution of zakat, our work represents an attempt to, to have an institution focused on this particular topic that is both authentic but also contextually relevant and doing what we think God wants us to do with this pillar. And I guess because it is one of the fundamental pillars of our religion, um, does it worry you that you know there are many, many people that don't know how to calculate zakat, don't know how to distribute it properly? Does that surprise you in terms of over the, over the number of years you've been involved? Yeah, I suppose it doesn't surprise me anymore. But certainly, certainly in the early part of our journey, one you know we, we definitely discovered this um, this issue of the fact that there's a, a huge amount of uh, misunderstanding, misinformation, a lot of myths really that surround the topic of zakat in the Muslim community. And that's why one of the key things that we did sort of halfway through our journey, so maybe a couple of years back, was to reposition our relationship with the zakat payer such that zakat payers for us were no longer donors, but rather beneficiaries or customers, just like the zakat recipient. So just like zakat recipients have needs that we are there to fulfill, zakat payers too have needs with regards to zakat payment that they need fulfilling, which we then call the understanding or education, calculation and the collection. So even the collection and distribution of a payer zakat, as far as we're concerned, is a service that we're providing as a middleman between payer and recipient. Uh, but by repositioning that relationship, we have a direct and inherent concern for actually supporting you know, Muslims everywhere, regardless of where they pay their zakat, to actually understand and calculate it properly at least. And do you feel that you're you trying to make a bit of a paradigm shift in the sense that many people may see zakat as a burden that they have to do, they've got wealth, they have to calculate, they have to give it away. Do you think the relationship with the mentality should be different in terms of thinking about our... I mean, what does our classical history say or, you know, the, our precedence? Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I think... 
I think the payment of zakah is about being dutiful at the end of the day. That's how I think you know one should one should look at it. And it's probably the notion of zakah classically was probably closer to the idea of tax as opposed to the idea of charity, as we use both of those words currently. So we might not say zakah is either tax or charity today, but you might call it a charity tax or something. But there is definitely an idea of this was about just as when one pays one taxes properly today. Uh, one considers oneself doing one's duty and being part is part of your citizenship of the, the you know the, the place in which you live. Similarly, zakah could be kind of seen in that way. That's part of this faith community. You're doing your minimum due to actually resource the faith community, you know, with what it needs to meet its, its you know its important needs basically. And we're going to cast you away on this desert island. So tell us about the first item that you're going to take with you. Sure. So um, most of mine are sort of Quranic verses. Uh, and I was trying to kind of, uh, I ordered mine, roughly speaking, in, in, in a way that might represent my journey so far and perhaps my future uh, sort of direction. The first one, the first verse is a verse from um, uh, Surah Al-Nahl, which is chapter 16, the B, where Allah says, وَلِلَّهِ غَيْبُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا أَمْرُ السَّاعَةِ إِلَّا كَلَمْحِ الْبَصَرِ أَوْ هُوَ أَقْرَبِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٌ So it's actually that central phrase where after saying that to Allah belongs the, um, all the unseen matters of the heavens and the earth, and then he says that the matter of the hour, the final hour, is like the blinking of an eye, or even closer. In Allah ala kulishin qadir, that indeed you know, God is all-powerful over everything. And I think it's just, uh, the reason why I chose that as a starting point, because I think it just gives a sense of perspective. You know? you know, when you think about, from Allah's perspective, you know, the final hour coming, or being like the blink of an eye, or even closer, Meaning, you know, something that we all relate to, the blinking of an eye. So it's a very universal kind of concept. Uh, but the fact that, you know, really it's like nothing, you know, to, from a time perspective and certainly for him being beyond time. And it just gives a sense of perspective for us that whatever it is that we're going through, the ups or downs or whatever it is, I just feel whenever I've come across this verse, it kind of just, you know, roots you, uh, repositions you, recalibrates you, if you like. And has faith always been an important factor? I mean, in terms of, you tell us a bit about what life was like growing up. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, it has been. I think, I, I suppose I, I, I would say that I grew up in quite a religious household uh, where there was, from an early age, a lot of importance placed on learning and understanding, but not just knowledge uh, for the sake of learning, but also a lot of kind of activism. So from a young age, uh, especially my mum encouraged me to get involved with a lot of community kind of activities. Just even in little things that might seem small now, but just things like, you know, just organising regular weekly football for kind of, you know, brothers in the local area, which I kind of did for about 10 years, you know, in, during my teenage years and what have you. And we used to do like a, a weekly newsletter, uh, just an A4 double-sided newsletter we produced on Fridays. We probably did over a thousand kind of uh, issues over the course of a few years. And every week we would kind of go around, my mum would drive me around and sort of deposit them at various mosques, basically, for people to pick up, you know, after Jummah. So it wasn't something from the mosque, it was actually... No, no, it was something we did at home. At home, and then you give it. Yeah, literally went around. And what sort of things would you write and put in this? It was, it was, it was called a, a, a Noor, like a weekly newsletter for Muslim youth. It was just like little, you know, snippets, a hadith, a bit of an article here and there, and, you know, just sayings, you know, quotes and... Um, just all sorts and we used to kind of get people's contributions as well and then later on it kind of we just put it as a PDF and just had an email list and we found that you know we were, it, wasn't, it wasn't something that we were particularly pushing or you know it was particularly organised I would say but we found actually we ended up having quite a little bit of a global audience so there's literally people from all over the world actually were, just heard about it somehow randomly and is it still going or is it unfortunately it's not at the moment no, but uh, maybe something my, my own children will pick up as a legacy maybe down the line and so then 
uh, growing up in, I guess, this quite religious household, I mean, what were your aspirations in terms of careers and direction in life? Did you? Yeah. Was that clear early on? I think my dad had a very clear idea that finance was a good idea. You know, he would uh, sometimes sort of put newspaper cuttings my way about you know how uh, bankers and financiers generally were doing pretty well in life. Um, so I think he definitely had that. At the same time, both my parents were kind of quite conscious of this, what we might use, or the kind of phrase that we often use, this kind of deen and dunya balance, basically. And so I was kind of, you know, alhamdulillah, I was getting, you know, a very good kind of quote-unquote worldly education, as well as doing all things like Arabic and, you know, Quranic studies and what have you from quite a young age as well. I think in terms of my own ambitions, I don't know. I think I think even at university, even when I was at university, I was kind of really struggling with it because actually I had, my passion was to kind of pursue sort of Islamic studies in a kind of more traditional kind of sense. But I felt also a bit duty-bound to kind of get on and start working and relieve my kind of, you know, you know, d- you know my dad of his kind of uh, burdens, if you like. And was he involved in finance or what was his passion? Oh, he had a number of different... He was, a, he was an engineer by profession, but then was involved in a number of different businesses and had a lot of ups and downs and all sorts. So, yeah, a very kind of varied... Yeah. But a very energetic man, mashallah. And he's still, he's still going, alhamdulillah. He's uh, in his late 70s now, but he's, uh, he's doing well, alhamdulillah. And so then you went to university and you studied finance? Or I, well, I did economics. Economics, economics yeah. and then I switched for a management course for the final year at Cambridge University, so between 2002 and 2005. And what were your university days like? It was good, alhamdulillah. Quite, quite overtaken by Islamic society activity from an early stage. So I think within two months of being at the university my first year, the treasurer of the ISOC basically dropped out. And the only qualification you needed to be a treasurer of the ISOC at that time was being studying economics. Like, for some reason, that was apparently, you know, there was a connection. Um, so quite, I was very quickly involved. And in my second year, I was vice president. And my final year, I was a president of Islamic Society. So that was always quite, um, you know, quite a big part of, uh, you know, my life there. I was also playing squash as well for the, my college squash team. But to be honest, between that and studies, you know, probably wasn't much else I was doing, really. So in one way, when I look back, I kind of think to a certain degree, I didn't necessarily fully benefit from the breadth of what was on offer at university perhaps but uh, but yeah that was my, my this was at Cambridge yeah it's so often you hear about quite quite vibrant Islamic scene in these sort of universities did you find that it was oh, definitely. spoilt for choice no no alhamdulillah I think it was a very vibrant scene and it was one importantly one that was in my time anyway very non-sectarian well when I, when I was there I understood that in previous sort of years because obviously the flavor can change very quickly of kind of what's going on there but in previous years like in the previous say five ten years it gone gone through various phases of having a certain type of identity or label and in subsequent years i think that was also the case to a certain degree in my time alhamdulillah you know it was i mean nothing to do with me necessarily but it was just i just felt it was very open yeah it was very non-sectarian and i think one of the one of the things i've always i've never personally belonged to any group, sect or anything like that, I've always been quite open, quite happy to say I'm Muslim and any I don't need to define myself beyond that. And I think that that as a principle is something which I think a lot of us are still working out, to be honest. So tell us about your next item that you've chosen. Well, the next one is very simple. It's just a, a verse of three words. Chapter 81, at verse number 26, uh, Allah says, So where are you going? And this, I think, is something, I, mean, I think I'm someone who kind of, you know, has long obsessed and probably still do obsess, probably to maybe a slightly unhealthy level about why am I doing what I'm doing? Where's it taking me? And trying to keep recalibrating and adjusting like my direction and you know where I'm at. I think this is a very powerful verse, very simple, but it applies again to anyone, anywhere. All human beings ask themselves that questions at different stages in their life, maybe with different frequencies, different levels of intensity. But everyone ultimately is considering this issue. You know, so where are you going? And in the following verse, Allah says, you know referring to the Qur'an, that it is but a reminder to, to, to everybody, to all the world. 
meaning you know almost find your sense of purpose and direction within this and this sense of constantly checking yourself really being sure it sounds like internally you need to be sure you're heading in the right direction is that mm. has that been throughout most of your life is that sort of do you remember at school was it again were you thinking like life yeah. meaning purpose all of these things maybe more in a general sense but then I think what it is it kind of comes down to it's not then just about like so there's a certain level at which people are kind of questioning or thinking about more existential questions but once you're settled on the idea of you know God creator man here for a purpose then it comes down to the micro questions but within the same framework and the question ultimately is what does God want from me specifically beyond just general notions of yes worship and devotion but like given the skills that I have, given the time and place that I'm in, like why has he put me here now, you know, and for me to think, well, what's the best that I can do with all of that, given the exact conditions that are surrounding me? And I think that it was that kind of quest, that line of questioning that really uh, made me leave my sort of career that I was involved with after I left uh, university. So tell us a bit about that. So what did you do after university? Yeah, so for five years I was basically uh, an equity analyst, which basically means a stockbroker uh, in the city, so working in, in, uh, in investment banks. I was actually... Uh, uh, probably one of the most famous investment banks but for all the wrong reasons which was Lehman Brothers uh, and so I, I was there for the two and a half years before the, the financial kind of crisis It wasn't your fault was it? Uh, no, well yeah, I certainly I, I was a victim <laughs> I, I think bankers get a bad rap I think So give us what, what was that we watch movies and you know mm. Wall Street and that I mean what is what's life actually like in that uh, Definitely hectic hectic intense but I think Certainly where I was at and the people that I was working with, I felt it was very kind of meritocratic. So a really good learning environment, I felt. For the first two and a half years, three years of my kind of five-year stint there, I felt like I was really, I learned a lot. And I think I actually benefit from a lot of that learning even today in terms of what I do at National Zakar Foundation. Um, was there a lot of pressure? Was it long hours? Was it? Yeah, it was pressure. It was long hours. It was like, you know, 6.45 starts in the office, uh, you know, usually until sort of six, seven a night. So I was more involved in the market side, financial market side, where you typically have early starts and then early evening kind of finishes usually, but sometimes obviously it would go on and sometimes weekends and stuff. Um, but it wasn't kind of crazy kind of banking hours, which often happens on the deal side of banking. But I think, you know, overall fine. And I think, again, in terms of Muslim community within the city, and certainly now I know it, there's, you know, there's a very healthy kind of Muslim professional scene, I would say, uh, where, again, people are in this kind of deen and dunya kind of conundrum in quite an intense way. Actually, my next verse relates to this uh, yes. issue. So What's I your next item? Bring that in, which is um, in Surah Nur. So just a couple of verses after the actual, the verse of light, where Allah says he's the, the light of the heavens and the earth. It refers to people, uh, that people whom neither trade nor buying and selling business diverts them from the remembrance of Allah establishing prayer and giving zakah uh, because they fear a day in which the hearts and sights of people will be overturned and then Allah says that he will reward them according to the best of what they did um, and that he will give them increase out of his bounty and that he you know, provides without sort of measure and I th- I've always loved this one and I remember quoting it a lot during kind of various sermons I might have given you know, during those kind of city years or sometimes when I revisit some of these places because it's very it's very interesting verse in terms of how it's ordered, if you like, saying that look, these are people who are involved in the world, but they're not of the world. You know that we're that they are in trade and they are in business. The things that are pro- possibly you know, we might see as the most worldly enterprises uh, and the most distracting. And anyone who knows is an entrepreneur or is a business person knows knows all about that. But none of that takes them away from the fundamentals. And he mentioned specifically a remembrance of God, 
establishing prayer and giving the zakat. And later on, actually, the, uh, we'll come to it later perhaps, but there's something really central and important and something I've been reflecting on more in the last few years, given what I'm doing, about this whole idea of belief, salah, and zakah as really the, the crux of the matter when it comes to an individual, but also communal development of a Muslim community. And did you ever find that there was a conflict between, I guess, you know, on the one side, this quite religious consciousness that mm. you had and about faith, and I guess working in this very sort of materialistic you know environment and I guess links to the quote that you just you know chose mm. but I guess some people can find that balance quite incongruous and quite difficult I mean, yeah. did, was that an internal struggle for you definitely was it a constant thing because I guess the layman thinking about interest based systems etc sure. global you know effects definitely initially it's not it's not even about that so even even before you look at the overall paradigm if you like in which these things are you know are operating just the environment is so different if you just had a relatively normal upbringing you've gone to university you had a quite a in some i wouldn't say um i wouldn't know about insular but certainly you know you you've you've kind of you've let's call it kept to the straight and narrow if you like and then you're suddenly in this very fast-paced clearly profit-oriented kind of environment it's a shock so initially for me it was quite it was definitely an adjustment period. And when I would do internships and stuff, or some of these like one week or one day type experience things whilst at university, it was a massive shock, to be honest. I think over time, you just kind of locate yourself. But I think these shocks are really important, like, because they, you know, people often ask or have had conversations, maybe still, still do sometimes about, you know, do they see themselves staying in this country, raising their children here, or should they go somewhere else? Is it safer, quote unquote, elsewhere? You know, that's a big thing that still kind of comes to people's minds. But I think it's only through the challenge of being in an environment like the one we're in where you actually are forced to ask yourself the certain questions that really um, mould and shape a, f- a kind of faith that perhaps is potentially you know, much more rooted and stronger because you've kind of weathered a lot of these different challenges and you can try to get to a point of seeing things how they are and get a good sense of perspective. So I think that over time, I think you definitely locate yourself and you're sure of just constantly trying to calibrate and you know, make sure that you are as best as possible on the straight path. Tell us about your next item. Uh, yeah, so the next one kind of refers to when I, I suppose one that occurs to me when I left, when I left banking, because I gave up, uh, I gave, in financial terms, kind of gave up a lot. I actually had a, at the time of leaving, I was actually had a, had just moved to another firm and had a kind of two year guarantee ahead of me in terms of my salary bonus and all these kinds of things. And so to give that up, to pursue actually at that time, something which a bit, I wasn't sure that I was going into National Zakar Foundation specifically, but I was joining an organization called Mercy Mission at the time who, who founded National Zakar Foundation. That's how I got involved later on. And all I really knew is that they might be able to pay me kind of four months down the line, you know, if this volunteering period went okay. Uh, and that there was a, you know, but they had a good ethos about them and there was a desire to be professional in doing kind of Islamic slash community work. That's pretty much all I knew, really. But that was enough for me because I was so desperate to get out of what I, you know, I, I reached a point where I was, I was pretty desperate to get out. I just felt I didn't have a problem with the specific line of work that I was in, you know, from a technical sort of legal perspective. I just felt in response to what we were speaking about earlier, that this is not why I'm on the planet, basically, like me specifically. You couldn't see yourself then 20 years time could... Yeah, for 20 years, been... like 20 minutes was like, by the end of it, it was literally, it was literally like that. it must have been quite lucrative and... I mean, exactly, like it was very lucrative. I, I'm not quote, quote the numbers right now, but uh, it was, it was, it yeah. was, it was, uh, it, it was not bad. So it, was, it wasn't, so it wasn't a judgment on anyone else for doing that. It was about saying, no, this is not me. Like, given everything I have, everything I know, everything I could do, could achieve, 
You know, what does really what does Allah want me to do? And I remember I remember that when in that struggle, because I got quite desperate. Because when you look around, there's not many there are not many obvious opportunities that are just waiting in the community for you to just walk into. Um, you know, our institutional capacity is quite immature still. I would say to allow for that for anyone with a professional background who just wants has, wants a basic kind of wage or whatever just to keep things going, who then just employ their skills in a more full time capacity. There's a lot of volunteering, a lot of that stuff, which is fine, but I do feel that we need more of that where people are actually dedicating themselves to, you know, intra-community kind of, and even inter-community, uh, you know, on behalf of Muslims, you know, activity. Uh, and I remember, you know, I really broke down one night, to be honest, and I, I really felt after maybe relying on everyone else that I maybe was actually uh, asking Allah directly. And I asked Allah, you know, just to give me, you know, a way out. And this verse, very famous verse, وَمَنْ يَتَّقِ اللَّهِ يَجْعَلْ لَهُ مَخْرَجًا So it appears in the Surah of Talaq, of divorce, and it's interesting because obviously divorce, for anyone who uh, may go through it, is obviously an extremely stressful kind of situation. But here Allah says that whoever is co- truly conscious of God, that he will uh, give him a way out, a makhraj. So when you go in the Arab world above the door, instead of exit, you will see the word makhraj, right? So it's like, okay, in that time of crisis, he will point you where the exit is, basically. And will provide for them from where they don't expect. And I can definitely say that in the last five years, I have experienced that for sure. Like... You know, when things have seemed seem difficult or, you know, even financially or how, however, that things just, you know, alhamdulillah, I think I feel I've experienced like mini miracles, if you like, on a fairly regular basis. You can, know, where, can you share any of them? Uh, I mean, a lot, sometimes they come down, to, sometimes it does come down to issues of like provision and stuff, right? So where, you know, where you don't expect, one thing I felt, you know, when I was thinking about, okay, but for, for me to basically give up the kind of salary and financial kind of uh, the income that I had for something else, one of the things I remember specifically thinking was, I'm definitely not going to be able to travel as much as I used to because I just won't be able to afford, like, afford it, to be honest. So that's an item I will have to cut out. So I was kind of just working in my mind, like, what are the things that I have need to be prepared for, if you like. And um, you'd previously quite enjoyed traveling and done quite a bit. Yeah, no, exactly, because you, you know, cause obviously, you know, you, I could afford to go to like nice places and, you know, nice hotels in nice countries and explore this and that and the other, which, you know, did a, a fair bit of. And something which obviously naturally one, one enjoys, right? And not to mention Umrah as well, right? And, and all of that kind of stuff, just to be, I mean, these things are things that require a bit of cash nowadays, Hajj, etc. But subhanAllah, like, last year, for example, I went to eight countries yeah eight different countries and none of them which I was particularly pursuing just opportunities came up and things happened but it was just either part of part of the work I was doing or some other opportunity that came up but just things happened and you know and a lot of those a lot of those visits didn't happen with me necessarily putting much money on the table right so you know alhamdulillah I think that's a simple example but it's just one of those things which I think that you know we talk about the issue of uh, provision being fixed but I think for a lot of people that's a very theoretical notion like do we actually have the guts to kind of go make decisions knowing that that is actually the case that's what i was going to ask because i guess we you know we often hear sermons and lectures about i guess you know having that true yakin you know trust in love but you know literally you know you're probably like jumping off a cliff and not knowing Mm. you know what's going to happen you know because when you left you know it was a voluntary job was it some other job career all of those things but you've you found you over the years that things have come through and even in a better position than than you could have ever imagined I mean another another even more obvious one to be honest which I didn't mention is that um, uh, when I left I wasn't married at the time (laughs) and I just so happened to end up in um, uh, so I left in June 2011 and Ramadan was in September uh, in August sorry and I had agreed to basically start sort of you know working if you like with Mercy Mission immediately after Ramadan and in the meantime, Mercy Mission set up a, um, uh, had, had just launched a, uh, what they called a Medina, or an Islamic center in Melbourne, in Australia. 
Um, and that year, like in the previous two years, I had actually been involved in doing Tarawi at my local masjid. But that particular year, like I think a new imam had come in and basically there wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't necessary. My services weren't required. Um, <laughs> Very and, diplomatic. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and, um, and I remember being a, a little bit peeved about that at the time. Uh, but anyway, but then this thing came up and then the, the guys in Australia had said that we, they wanted to launch like a mid-Ramadan program, basically, right, in Melbourne. So I said, okay, well, I'll go then, basically, right? Maybe I can just go and help out. It was just very spontaneous. And on the 29th night of Ramadan, I met my now wife. Really? Yeah. So that was the around the end of August. And uh, I literally met her. Apparently, she was dragged kicking and screaming, you know, on the encouragement of a friend who was the wife of a guy that I got to know there to say, like, you can meet this guy, you know, maybe it might be something there. And um, so it was literally, it was quite time-constrained. People were thinking, like, well, why the heck were you doing this on the 29th night of Ramadan? Because basically, I think probably the next day she was going off, and a couple of days later I was leaving and stuff, so she was going to Sydney from Melbourne and stuff. Anyway, so I met her for about just over an hour or so uh, on that night, and so it was definitely the night of power. Um, and then a lot of noor and And then a month later, so I came back two, a couple of, two, three days later to the UK, and then a month later I went back to do the nikah there. And then a couple of months later, she moved to the UK. Alhamdulillah, we're, we're still married. We've got two girls now. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So, you know, that, that I mean, yeah. She'll probably, if she listens to this, thinking like, why did you mention that after you mentioned this uh, holiday and traveling <laughs> thing? But yeah, anyway. Tell us about your next item. Sure. Uh, so the next, one, the next one also relates a little bit to what we spoke about earlier. And in Surah Tawbah, Allah SWT talks about, I think, summarizes the importance of cooperation, but also about like again the priority matters we talked about the first three pillars or iman belief salah and zakah so he says so the believing men and women are friends supporters protectors of, of each other and then describes what they do you know he says they encourage you know enjoying the good you know forbid the evil and things which are you know wrong and inappropriate um they establish prayer, they give zakah, and they obey Allah and His Messenger. So it's interesting that again this issue of salah and zakah comes up. So actually salah and zakah are mentioned together about 28 times in the Qur'an. And in this particular one, every time they're mentioned, you could argue they didn't have to be mentioned. Because obviously salah and zakah come within, the, within obedience, within enjoining the good and, and you know, all of that. But they're always highlighted very specifically. Uh, as being important, it's almost like the prime, the prime, uh, the prime act of uh, of duty and devotion to Allah, and the prime act of uh, duty, du- dutifulness in on a communal sense. These two vertical and horizontal, if you like, dimensions come together, and both involve the sacrifice, minimum sacrifice of time and money. Uh, you know, arguably our two most I mean, nowadays you say time is money, right? Uh, but you know, a minimum sacrifice of time in salat and money and uh, wealth in zakah. Uh, that Allah requires from us almost as like necessary conditions to evidence the first pillar this bearing witness that he is he is one there's no, nothing else worthy of devotion so Allah describes him like this and he says these are the ones that Allah will shower his mercy upon uh, indeed Allah is almighty wise so I think for me that's been an important one because actually that's you know this enjoining the good and the whole idea of being involved in this zakah institution if you like is something being quite obviously deeply now involved in for the last five and a half years or so. So yeah, that was just the one I wanted to share. And so when you joined Mercy Mission, um, where did the National Zakat Foundation come out of that? Were you involved from the early stages? And was that what yeah, yeah. you were doing in those early yeah, days? Yeah, sure. So basically that, that same Ramadan when I was off in Australia, that was the Ramadan that National Zakat Foundation was being launched here. So I wasn't involved in that launch kind of activities as such. Uh, but then about a few months, a few months later, towards the end of 
2011, effectively there was a bit of a vacuum in terms of who was really going to take this on now, post what was an initial su- uh, initially successful fundraising and awareness period. So I basically became the first full-time staff member of NZF, which at that time was a part of the entity of Mercy Mission. And then a couple of years later, it spun out of Mercy Mission to a separate cha- uh, entity and charity. Um, and now, alhamdulillah, we have over 20 staff around the country. Uh, we've opened the UK's first zakah centre uh, in Whitechapel, in which, in which we're sitting right now. Um, and alhamdulillah, we've also got plans. We're, at the moment, we're looking at opening a zakah centre in Birmingham and Leicester as well. And slowly, hopefully, going to move our way up towards uh, towards Glasgow. I was going to ask you any presence in Scotland. Yeah, you know, something I've, I've long spoken to about. Probably some mutual friends I've spoken to spoken spoken to on this issue as well. I think we're getting there uh, slowly, but maybe a little bit too slowly. Half the time, we're wondering whether you guys are still going to be part of the UK or not. You see, <laughs> so since you guys can never make up your mind, or uh, circumstances conspire to give you further opportunities to uh, to uh, to separate yourselves it's almost like a, from a strategic standpoint we almost want to kind of just wait are you, are you still part of this country or not so um anyway that's a, a side a side point but we do have we do have presence from the perspective of there are zakar payers and recipients in scotland that we engage with so um you know any any person who's in difficulty in scotland can apply to us or be referred to us for support because the most the vast majority of our zakar distribution is done remotely as is the vast majority of our advice and support for zakat payers. So any zakat payer in Scotland who wants just to ask a question about zakat calculation, just to understand something, wants to give their zakat locally to be distributed within the UK and possibly even within Scotland because we do have recipients in Scotland, you know, we can we can service. So in a remote sense, we can service, if you like, the Scottish Muslim population. But certainly it's something we'd like to definitely um, advance soon in terms of actual a more physical and local presence. I think you've advertised previously on things like Radio Ramadan and Glasgow and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you say talk about, you know, for people that are not familiar with the model in terms of you talk about recipients in the UK. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what is the setup you've got? How can you help? Sure. How can we help use zakat in the UK? Yeah, sure. So number one is is that what you know for for for, for anybody who's got kind of. Um, uh, who's uncertain about the whole issue of zakat being given locally in the first place, or whether there's anybody who's eligible? I mean, we've dealt with now five and a half thousand cases, you know, since we've been around, and, and pretty much dealing with you know four hundred new ones a month a month now. Uh, so that matter for us is pretty much settled, uh, you know, as far as is there the need? And to be honest, even the mainstream press of the last five years, during austerity and, and and food banks being on the rise all over the country, and you know, I think and probably on average the Scottish. Uh, seem to understand this issue probably more than some parts of the uh, the rest of the UK uh, and know that there is an issue of poverty you know and need in this country and within our communities disproportionately higher than the average so there is a you know an even bigger issue and so what we do is basically we we provide in effect a grant very flexible tailored grant service for an individual in difficulty so someone can apply to us will be referred to us uh, there'll be an administrative process just to make sure we have all the details. We have an expert caseworker uh, with various supporting sort of specialists who can then identify what the particular issues are and provide holistic advice and support as well as direct uh, zakat money in such a way that will really support that person with their essentials. Uh, but also increasing over the last few years with more, if you like, empowerment related needs, even educational. So now, you know, we have a balance of spend now across our whole zakat distribution that is dealing with the sharp end of poverty on a day-to-day basis and emergencies and street homelessness. But it's also, on the other hand, uh, on the other hand helping uh, Muslims 
you know, complete master's programs and PhDs uh, or going, entering into vocational training uh, or fulfilling other kinds of needs, which is about also supporting our, if you like, perhaps existing or emerging, you know, leadership. Uh, and sometimes pe- that strikes people as odd. Why? Because in their minds, zakah is only about poverty. Um, but there's a strong argument to say that, you know, zakah is not um, ultimately about poverty. Just like salah ultimately is not about physical exercise or fasting is not ultimately about just, you know, not eating or drinking. And hajj is not ultimately about just going there and putting the two sheets on and all the rest of it. All of these, all of these pillars are there ultimately to do, to, um, to, to build, maintain and protect uh the processes and the characteristics in the individuals and in, a, in the community that will give the best chance for faith to flourish. So zakah ultimately is about putting the necessary conditions in place, the socio-economic conditions in place, such that iman's got a good chance. And well, how do we know this? Because even with the poverty issue, why do we give to the poor? Ultimately, we give to the poor so they don't give up on this faith community. You know, that's why in certain parts of the world, and even in this country, where uh, when when poor Muslims don't find support from within the Muslim community, but they find that support elsewhere, well, what does that do for their Islam, for their Iman? Whereas we know, we know through a lot of the experience that we've had, is that once someone, once that support has been provided, to which they have a right, that their response and their feedback is not about the material benefit that they receive, but about the fact that, oh, brother, I believe in Allah again, I feel part of the Muslim community again. Just being able to speak to someone from their own community is such a massive uh, Iman-boosting kind of a belonging um, kind of effect that we we often just forget about or disregard. Does that often reaffirm to you that you made the right choices? No, alhamdulillah, no, definitely. I mean, no, no regrets whatsoever. Obviously, there's been challenges and difficulties, uh, but then again, you 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 seem to have this uh, ability to just take me from one verse to the next. Uh, uh, so my next one is um, from Surah Al Imran, uh, chapter three, verse hundred and thirty-nine, where Allah says, "Wala tahin, wala tahzan, wa in kuntum mu'minin." When things are difficult, which they have been, obviously. Uh, sometimes very difficult at times from all sort of different perspectives. Uh, Allah says, you know, don't, don't, um, don't fear, don't grieve. You almost like don't give up, kind of thing. You will be in the ascendancy if you are, if you are truly, uh, if you are truly believers. Yeah, that basically, yes, you will have your ups and downs, but just like a stock price chart, right, will have its ups and downs. But as long as its trajectory is <laughs> is up in the long run, that's what you know. That's and that's the guarantee that Allah gives us. Basically, if you truly uh, demonstrate that iman. Uh, and replenish it and kind of really um, you know strive then you know inshallah things will things will work out and have you faced a lot of resistance or challenges with the NZF uh, there have been some there have been some I think at the end of the day like you know not not much that has been that vocal certainly in the beginning there was you know there were challenges the guys who even were launching the NZF before I was really fully involved they faced a lot of challenge and difficulty Anything new causes, you know, causes sort of um, a bit of an upheaval, if you like. But over on balance, the vast majority of people that, you know, as far as I can tell, I think understand the sense. So even if they're not actively giving, people aren't actively willing to give their zakah locally for whatever reason. Um, sometimes it could be a good reason. They might have like family, you know, abroad that need support and what have you. Um, that I think the vast majority of people don't, you know, don't have a problem with the concept or in principle. I think it's impossible to have a problem with it in principle. This is the thing. Um, but I think where a shift still needs to take place is actually, um, which is something which, again, for most people might seem quite an extreme kind of position, but it's one that I'm kind of quite convinced about now. I've thought about it day in, day out for a long time. 
and trying to take myself outside of my position, but just looking at it, if you like, strategically, um, is that local zakat, I believe, is a priority. And the reason it's a priority is because, it, as I said, it goes beyond the poverty thing. It's about making, it's about giving us, making our community strong. And if our community is strong, and that strength is of many different kind of types, if you like, but if our community is strong, actually, you know, this local, this small, relatively small, even UK Muslim community can have a, can have a much bigger global impact, you know, prevent a lot of global problems and difficulties and have a much bigger reach and influence you know, if we have a certain strength, which I do think that Zakai is a big part of locally. And I guess one of the things that you're challenging is the culture of, you know, sending Zakat abroad into other countries and back home for, me, for many of us. Um, I mean, what do you say to people that say, look, you know, you talk about poverty here and fine, but it's not to the extent of real poverty across, you know, at least in yeah. the welfare system, there's other issues here. Yes. So, you know, in terms of where you're going to get the most impact for the pound that you're going to give to Zakat, yeah. we still feel more comfortable giving it abroad. That's fine. But then this is the, this is the point. Who said that that's the way to assess where your Zakat should go? Who said, who, where does it say that we are supposed to assess where we give our Zakat on the basis of where we feel that it will have most impact as Zakat payers? This is the problem. The whole, we are actually looking at Zakat in what I would consider to be highly secular, humanitarian slash philanthropic. Is it not a case of where the greatest need is? No, not no. I, that is a factor. If you look at if you look and take the whole global kind of position, that is a factor. But again, remember, it's not poverty. Is not if you think if it's about if you think it's about poverty in the end, then you can see it in that way. But if you see it in the way that, in the framework I've been trying to suggest, then then actually it's relative. Because look, if it's if there is a if there is a young Muslim if there is a young Muslim for whom that support or not support you know in Glasgow in London or anywhere in between. If there is a young Muslim for whom that support might be the difference between their iman or not iman, then who is to say that that person is not more in need than someone else? And this is the problem. We've become very material. Why do we assess zakat in purely material terms or its impact? Now, if you look at it, that actually, yes, okay, it does make sense that the ultimate desire, as far as Allah is concerned, his want or not, his, is not a material one at the end of the day. His ultimate concern is, you know, where are our hearts going, right? And are we devoted to him? And, and therefore make, making it a duty that we put that minimum, uh, that minimum uh, provision in so that people aren't falling to a level of desperation that might call into question, call with a community in question, ultimately call him into question. The Prophet ﷺ used to make a dua, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika minal kufri wal faqr. I seek refuge in you from disbelief and poverty. It's not a coincidence those two were to, came together, right? So when you look at it from that perspective, I think that, you know, who are we to judge them? And then it comes down to duty, because the other way to look at this is to say, well, where there is a recipient in London or in Glasgow, or, go, or again, anywhere in between, but let's say on the streets around me, like, who, on who, like that's, my, that's my problem. And whatever I do anywhere around the world, that person is still my problem. So it's, it's like, you know, it's like the issue of, um, I would compare it to the, the, the issue of uh, the obligation to bury somebody when they pass away. We call it, we talk about it as a communal obligation. Until that person is buried, we've all got a problem. Well, until there's zakat recipients in the UK, it doesn't matter what else we do. We can still give money to go, for example, to bury people elsewhere in that initial example. But this person still needs burying. So we've still got, a, you know, we've still got an accountability. So if you look at it from the point of view of duty and accountability and responsibility, this issue doesn't go in. And finally, I would say this is that what, 
you know, I still believe that there's a much stronger argument, a long-run argument to say that we are far less likely to be in a position where our, great, our grandchildren and great-grandchildren are still giving relentlessly to what seems oftentimes, unfortunately, to be a black hole in where, whichever country around the world where there's this crisis or that crisis. We're less likely to, do, to be doing that in 100 years' time if we build strength here. You know? Whereas if we just keep doing what we're doing, which is oftentimes, unfortunately, like putting a plaster on like a gushing wound, What's it ultimately really achieving other than assuaging our own consciences temporarily? That's the problem. And so it's tough, like, of course, this is a highly emotive issue. But then remember sadaqah as well. So there is an idea that zakah for local and then sadaqah for elsewhere, or at least splitting one zakah if one has a, still can't get through that, you know, that issue, for example. Uh, or at least a portion of one zakah coming locally. If one can't see it, okay, this is the priority and my sadaqah and other giving can go elsewhere. Well, at least you can balance and apportion things. Tell us about your next item. The penultimate one is the one is a hadith actually about um, it's in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, famous one but a beautiful one where the, where the Prophet Sallallahu said that if the um, if the hour falls upon you whilst in your hand is a sapling, then you know, uh, you know let that person plant it basically. Then you should plant it. Uh, it's quite amazing, an amazing hadith really if you think about it, about a kind of. Um, a can-do attitude, you know, kind of keep going right to the very last. You know, when if the hours will fall upon you, you know, what does that mean? It means like the whole earth is shaking around you, you know, and all of these things that, you know, the sky falling, you know, stars extinguishing, but you've got this, I just still plant it, you know. It's amazing, really. Um, so, like, when all the chips are down, basically, and, you know, everything looks like it's maybe looking like a bit of a disaster, it's like just, fun, just opportunistic. Just be, you know, I think we're... Uh, it's not a word that maybe is banded around too much, but the idea of Muslims being like ridiculous opportunists for goodness, like that's that is what you know. That's what I take from that anyway. That any little thing here or there, who knows what deed, small deed, can be you know weigh heavily with Allah because of His intention, right? And it's just about constantly just looking, being alert to right. What can I do? What 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 can I do here that you know will, will please Allah? Or in that situation, or this situation, it can be it can be something very small. Um, you know, but it can be it can be so weighty with him. And are you an optimist? An optimist? Yeah, I think if we have to be, the Prophet was an optimist, and I think it's important to be a realist as well as an optimist. But pessimism is not our way. And where would you like to see yourself in you know five ten years time <laughs> with the NZF? Where would you like things to go? Hmm. I try. I've tried in a way to almost. Uh, I mean, as far as the National Zakat Foundation is concerned, I suppose it's different. If you're asking me what I want myself to be, that's probably a different question to where I want NZF to be. Well, you tell me about yourself. Because uh, I've tried to um, separate myself from being completely part of the furniture here, as far as possible. As far as, I would just say, as far as, as far as, in just very briefly, as far as the NZF is concerned, like I think I've actually given up on quantitative ambitions. Oh, I'd like it to be this big by this point in time. I actually think it's quite a dangerous way to look at things, you know, Almost like if your one's running their business, for example, and I want it to be this big or this profitable or this whatever. And to be honest, a lot of charities work like this. I have a target with a certain fundraising amount in a certain period of time. And I think to a certain extent, one can understand where that comes from. But I think it can be quite damaging to the culture and like how things work. Money becomes the object, basically. A number becomes the focus. Whereas if quality is the focus, the quality of activity on a day-to-day basis, in our case, a quality of service. I believe that if we truly serve Zakar payers with a genuine desire for people to understand calculating pay zakah properly and do it you know, for, for the right reasons, really understand what this pillar is about and genuinely go out to serve recipients and simply inform people about what we're doing, that is enough. We actually don't have a fundraising department actually. We just call it, we're just a marketing department that tells people, well here are these services, here are those services, this is what we do. 
you know, we don't really do the kind of fundraising dinners where we're kind of haranguing people for this, that and the other because I just don't feel that's appropriate. I think it actually takes away the dignity of the process and I'm not sure that it's what is intended, especially when it comes to zakat at least. So I think that for me, it's that quality over quantity and I think the quantity becomes a consequence, we're not a target. Uh, so inshallah, you know, I'm confident that will happen. As far as myself is concerned, then um, I think I just want to be in a position where, uh, whether it's in NZF or beyond NZF, where I'm just able to have... Um, you know, as much of an impact as possible as supporting, especially supporting other people's journeys. I've had various influences, but I wouldn't say I've had a mentor. I think I don't, I haven't been able to locate one, to be honest. I think I'm probably fairly well networked. But, you know, just somebody I feel I can really just trust, who I feel has got the relevant experience, not like real world experience, Islam, rooted Islamically. And so I have various inputs, which I then kind of gather and take, you know, take different influences. I always have had a, like that kind of really one-stop shop time mentor. And not necessarily that that's necessary. It's not that it's necessary because I think drawing a lot of different influences is a good thing. But I'd like to be someone who can really support people, uh, you know, especially, um, you know, quote-unquote emerging sort of leadership. And this idea of leadership is, a, is an interesting one. I'm, I'm very interested in actually exploring this notion, possibly even academically, like more. What does faith leadership mean? In the Quran, we ask Allah make you know there's a dua that's you know make that we ask God to make us leaders for the muttaqeen right for those who are God conscious what does that actually mean what are you actually asking for precisely that's a very interesting thing for me and I think that it's, a, it's something which I think again it's probably been underdeveloped kind of uh, you know notion so yeah and take us to your final item that you're going to take with you to the yeah the, fi- the, the final item has to be the uh, is what I'd call the uh, you know, the words that you want to hear at the, uh, at the very end. So at the end of Surah Al-Fajr, famous set of verses, which often are, sometimes you find uh, when you go to a graveyard inscribed on some gravestones and stuff, where, you know, the, the soul of the person is addressed, right, at the time of death. Uh, and basically, this is like what we all ordinarily hear at the, at, the, at the end, right? That, oh, you contented soul, return to your Lord, pleased with him and him being pleased with you so enter amongst my servants and enter my garden and that's how Surah Al-Fajr you know ends yeah and that's really what it's all about I suppose <laughs> you know uh, trying to find that uh, trying to find that contentment and as I think you know Ibn Taymiyyah said that you know th- there is a Jannah in this world and whoever doesn't find it may not find it in the next life right uh, something that's a paraphrasing but something along those lines but it is about finding that kind of nurturing that internal um, garden before inshallah we, we, we end up in the uh, in the garden of the hereafter and you you know you strike me as somebody who's um, obviously very intelligent very sort of competent you know always a doer a problem solver I get the sense that your mind's always ticking and thinking about ideas um, do you have time to relax what do you do <laughs> to relax do you have anything that makes you laugh yeah no I mean well I like comedy in general um I'm not sure if my own comedy is uh, any good, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah, I think I find I find a lot of, um, uh, you know, it it depends. Like the, a lot of this work is in itself very pleasurable. The people you get to meet, the discussions that you have, the relationships that you build. Yeah, you know, I build relationships and with with people that you know are, are just so valuable. You know, so and. You find a lot of pleasure in that. So with those same people that you're, you know, you're sort of working hard with, that sort of day in day out, or communicating with, you know, actually you are able just to have just to have that uh, social time with them. Obviously, family-wise, spend you know, spend trying to 
trying to balance everything is obviously very difficult with spending time with parents, you know, wife, uh, two girls, as I mentioned, they're, they're very young, two and three. So they, they're kind of automatic uh, de-stressors, really. Um, but alhamdulillah, yeah, I try and balance things out. I, I, but I don't think there's probably, there's not a lot that I can point to that I actually do other than the work that I'm doing, you know, I like reading because I think it just gets you... I like reading and then basically, you know, looking at the theory of whatever you're looking at and then just looking at what you're actually doing and trying to find some sort of harmony. So how do you think you're caught with the solitude on this desert island? Actually, you know, it's so funny because I often tell my wife that I'm, I actually, I'm someone who actually craves solitude. I, I actually hate being in the limelight, to be honest, um, to the small extent that I might be sometimes. Uh, I, I actually quite dislike it. You know, I don't like... You know, inherently managing people, actually having that responsibility, I find it actually very stressful. You know, in, in its own right. In its own right. So I, lo- I, I love the idea of solitude, to be honest. So hopefully, someone will rescue me from the island. You know, uh, within within some period of time. But I actually do. I do like it. I think a sense of quiet uh, and peace. You know, is is something which is quite difficult to come by. So yeah, I think I. I quite You'll do okay. I'll, I'll do all right. At least at the beginning, before I start missing people. But yeah. And you can take a book with you. What book would you take with you apart from obviously the Quran? Mm, so the book I put down is, is called King of the Castle by Guy Eaton. So Guy Eaton passed away a few years ago, a quite remarkable kind of person. And his writings, some of the most amazing kind of writings about Islam in the English language. Islam and also Islam and modernity specifically. So he has two books, Islam and the Destiny of Man, which many people have converted on just reading that book. And, uh, and this King of the Castle is a book that I read. So when we were talking about this whole uh, reconciling being in kind of the finance world and, you know, and, and trying to be you know, religious and having that kind of lifestyle, this is one that kind of really helped me. Actually, I remember reading on the train back and forth from work at that time. And it was, a, it was, it was something that really helped me kind of place myself. And it was, it was about putting, because a lot of people, they don't maybe think about just putting a modern world in context, you know, of human sort of history. Um, and there's a lot of features of, of modernity or post-modernity as people kind of would talk about it now that are quite particular in, in, a, in a kind of in a, in a sort of historical sense uh, and and there's you know there's, it gives rise to a lot of confusion difficulty and you know people kind of question like questioning things and seeing where they are so I, I found it a brilliant book to be honest I, I, I thoroughly recommend it so it's King of the Castle and the subtitle is A Choice and Responsibility in the Modern World and you can take a luxury item with you. Yeah. So it's interesting. The only thing I could really think of is um, as a luxury item. I don't really possess many luxury items, to be honest. But I think uh, I, I could only mention my phone, not because I could call anyone necessarily, because presumably there's no reception on this desert island, but just because on my uh, Kindle, on my phone, I've got a lot of books. So I could uh, <laughs> you know, just maybe access more books that way. But yeah, I couldn't really think of anything else. Yeah. So it's been fascinating, Iqbal. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, may Allah continue to bless the work that you do, give you strength, inshallah. And I think, you know, clearly you're changing lives through the NZF and inshallah. That is something that hopefully, you know, that'll continue to grow and, and, and people will benefit from. So Jazakallah khair for your time. Remember us in your du'as. Likewise, thank you. And, um, you know, please um, keep in touch and let, keep us updated, I guess, with what's happening in Scotland as well absolutely well whenever you want to get me back on Radio Ramadan in Glasgow just let me know thank you for listening to Desert Island Gems let us know what you think of the show on the Radio Ramadan Facebook page and keep an eye out for special versions of the show on mcmuslim.tv
For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app.